host, Dr. K. Eyre. Despite trauma-informed education gaining credibility and popularity, educational leaders continue to battle systems to implement innovative and evidence-informed practices. The relentless advocacy for staff and students pushes principals to grow, both professionally and personally. So how do leaders sustain this work? In this third and final episode of our three-part series on trauma-informed leadership, we speak with Elizabeth Verstappen. Elizabeth was previously the principal of Saturdine Primary School in Alice Springs, Northern Territory, Australia. In this episode, Elizabeth shares how trauma-informed practices have influenced her beliefs and practice in education, and how leaders looking to embark on implementing trauma pedagogy can traverse the challenges they may face. Hi everyone and welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Dr. Gavin Krishnamurthy and I'm here as always with Dr. Kay Eyre. Hi Kay. Hi Gavin, how are you today? Good, thank you. Um, and good. we're joined today with uh, by Liz. Um, hi Liz, how are you? Hi, Gavin. Hi, Kay. Hello. Liz, thank you for joining us. This is our last episode where we're going to focus on the leader themselves and um, the tasks of building a community and building relationships with people in the school community and outside as well. Um, If you are tuning in to this episode, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our first two episodes where we've talked about how trauma-informed leadership can help in terms of students and staff. Um, So I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it. Lots of really great tips and stories in those ones. Um, So Liz, I wanted to start with a question we usually ask our guests um, right when we talk to them the first time, um, which is that because this podcast is for educators, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experience in school, um, going to school yourself, and how it kind of influenced the work you ended up doing. Mm, Yeah. Well, I grew up in a small country town in New Zealand. My parents were Dutch migrants, the very first to be in that very small town in New Zealand. So it's about 900 people right at the bottom of the South Island very cold. I didn't know that then until I went to the Northern Territory, but um, I really loved school. Um, Initially, I didn't like school. Before we moved to the small country town, we were, um, I was, I started school in Canterbury and um, I really didn't enjoy it because even though we were white, we were still different because we were a migrant family. And my brother and I, um, our parents were still very strong Dutch speakers. And so there was a difference. And the kids picked up really quickly on that difference. And I felt quite 
alienated, I suppose. And I still know that feeling from a five-year-old me. And, um, and I think it set me up to be a bit of a sort of um, person who looked out for others. So it gave me that sense that um, you needed to you needed to accept difference and you need needed to champion it. And um, I made a real art form of it as I got older. Um, I used to do a lot of sewing and making my own clothes because our family weren't very well off. We lived, um, there were six kids in our family and we lived pretty much subsistence. So money, money was um, a bit of an issue. But I used to get old clothes and make new ones out of them. My mother was a very clever seamstress and she taught me how to sew. And I used to wear these absolutely outrageous outfits to church every Sunday just to give someone or people something to talk about. So I really um, embraced that idea of difference. And my father was very good at, um, at supporting that, I suppose. He really engaged with people um, very strongly and he loved um, people around. Our house was a busy place with lots of visitors and things. So we always had that, that real expectation that, that people looked out for people, there was a sense of community and... Um, and that difference was, was respected and regarded. Um, so I took that into school. I used to, I was the eldest sister of um, four younger siblings and an, an older brother who always said I was real bossy anyway, so he was always scared of me. Um, and I used to make my siblings go to school. So from quite an early age, I'd converted this old shed and got some desks from school and I was the school teacher. And my brother Peter still maintains that um, I probably taught him his maths really well. Um, so I always had this idea of, of being in charge of, of people and we used to do concert parties and, and I, you know, I'd always wanted to be a performer. I'd always wanted to dance and I could never do that. So... Um, being in, in that sense, you know, looking after other kids and that I could help them do that. So that was always very much um, in my mind. And while I really enjoyed school, I also saw a lot of, I was also a bit of a rat bag, I suppose. I always championed the underdog and um, I didn't like being told what to do if I didn't think it was fair. I had a real sense of fairness, so I was a bit rebellious in that regard. Um, probably a little bit of a rat bag, but I always got away with it. So I learned the skills of negotiation quite early, which I think was really important. Um, I went to teachers, I, I went to university and studied um, home science, which then was a science subject. So we did psychology and, and we did food technology and it was a great subject. And so when I finished uni, I um, went to Teachers College, but I didn't want to teach. I just wanted it to go travelling with. And I worked in the rag trade and I worked in kitchens and I did all manner of things until I got to the Northern Territory and was offered a teaching job, although I did teach in a few schools in New Zealand. Um, and I was offered art. And I went, yes, I'll take it. So that was Darwin and um, then moved into... Alice Springs later on and into some adult education and then once 
I'd had my children, my four children, I then um, moved back into a primary or into a primary school. So I was secondary trained. Um, so, I, so I did the whole um, lot, really. But coming to Alice Springs was a very interesting thing for me to do. I mean, Darwin, when I first landed in Darwin in 1980, 81, it was like freedom for me because it was so, um, so sort of, you know, Darwin in 1981, you could do anything. Um, people were very welcoming. Nobody really cared what you wore or what you said or where you were from. Um, it was very, very liberating. And um, I sort of fell in love with the Northern Territory and then, of course, my partner. But moving to Alice Springs, I, the first job I got there was running the Women's Refuge. And that was very interesting for me because I got to know a lot of Aboriginal women and a lot of Aboriginal people and saw a whole different side of Alice Springs. So um, I've lived in Alice Springs for 35 years and um, I have a lot of friends who are Aboriginal and I've had the, um, I suppose, the wonderful opportunity to move um, into, in and out of Aboriginal communities and get to know Aboriginal people. I'm very interested in the, the whole um, opportunity that being in a place where there is such rich culture offers, and while I'm very much a white fella and, and I, you know, feel that sometimes, I think we are very, very privileged to be able to live in a time and a place where, you know, having a bit of knowledge and understanding or being able to listen to Aboriginal people and their stories is, is really, really valuable. Um, so I suppose <clears throat> I brought that into my teaching. Um, when I work with kids, I really love working with kids. Um, it gives me a lot of inspiration and a lot of energy. Um, I really enjoy listening to their ideas and their thoughts, and I love a great idea. And so, you know, the opportunity to let kids explore things and do things differently is really fun. And so I pushed the envelope a little bit and um, worked in spaces where, where you know, if you're, if you're enthusiastic enough and prepared to do enough organisation around stuff, you can create things in schools that can be a lot of fun, you know, science fairs, um, all sorts of art exhibitions, all sorts of things like that. And I suppose I had a lot of energy for that sort of stuff. And kids come on board really readily when they feel that you're passionate about something, that you're interested in them, and that, you know, that you're fair. Once again, when I worked in schools, I always championed the underdog. <coughs> Excuse me. So those kids with high needs, those kids with disabilities, I always wanted to find a way to connect with them better. And so finding ways to work better with kids and role modeling those ways in schools became a part of the way I operated. I always believed that <coughs> schools should be places of great learning and discovery, not places of lots of rules and tedious stuff like that. And so I, you know, tried to put my stamp on that whenever I could. And, um, the power of yes was always very prominent in what I did. Mm. So being able to say yes to things 
and then figuring it out afterwards yeah. was always something that I loved. Um, I'll just give you a chance to take another drink. Too much talking. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, just while you're drinking, um, Liz, uh, one of the things that's really struck me just from a the last two episodes particularly is how you've really illustrated all those sort of key principles of trauma and from practice, you know, the trust, the transparency, the, the collaboration and providing choice and empowerment, how that, that works from the student to the, you know, to the teachers. What has your journey been? I mean, we're talking about your own like leadership values and growth here. What was your journey to arrive to that. I mean, it sounded like you have a lot of life experiences where, you know, clearly those things were of value and you saw, you know, you saw the importance of them. But from a leadership and schooling point of view, what, what was your sort of journey to arrive at that? Because there's a lot of competing demands here and people who want other things from you. Mm. What was that like for you to land at those? Well, <clears throat> I suppose I always thought that, um, you know, that idea that um, behaviour communicates a need. I think that's always driven um, a lot of my thinking around working with kids in a school. So, you know, the idea that you blame kids for, for, for something they're doing was always a little bit interesting to me and didn't seem quite fair. So um, wanting to understand more about that, I, I really worked a lot through the arts, I suppose. So the arts was a real driver for me, the creative arts. And I always thought that learn, kids learning things through the using creative ways of doing it through the creative arts was a really powerful tool. And, you know, Ken Robinson was very influential for me in, in a lot of that early work that he did. And many have followed on from that. And I did a lot of reading on the power of music, the power of dance, the power of um, the visual arts and kids expressing themselves. And I guess that took me to that point that learning doesn't always have to be about maths and English, that there's an integrated way of doing this learning that could be very useful to a lot of kids. That I guess Ali Hood was very, um, she was a teacher at Saturday. She was, and she's, I've talked with Ali for years and years and years, really. We've always intersected our paths. And she's a very like-minded person. And she introduced me to a few ideas. Bessel van der Kolk was a book she threw at me um, very early in the piece. And that was transformative for me, reading that. Um, I'd heard about, you know, PTSD and um, my partner worked with Vet Affairs a lot and, and he talked about the trauma side. But when I read that, I really could relate that to a lot of the children that we worked with. And, and look, some of the staff too, you know, and people in this town. So when I started looking at Saturday in school and getting to know some of the families and, and um, people who lived in town camps and now a lot of people in Alice Springs have never set foot inside a town camp although there are 28 town camps in and around the town and they're very um, interesting places they can be a bit distressing um, 
you know, the, the living conditions in them are sometimes not so good. And visiting our kids in those places, um, in the town camps and, and some of the public housing areas, I realised how disadvantaged many of our families and children were. And um, it just didn't it just didn't feel quite right. And the little school Saturday had a very high percentage of Aboriginal kids, up to 92, 93%. There were 14 language groups represented in that space. And to me, that was intriguing. You know, some of our kids cannot read and write English, but they speak three or four other languages. <clears throat> and, you know, it's, it's pretty fascinating to see and to question um, education, how we offer it, and look at that bigger picture and think, what are we missing here? You know, um, when there are people who have this very old culture who have survived in a very harsh environment, um, very significant stories and understanding of country, and yet how do we capture that in, in what we do and how do we make it equitable? And um, to me, it, it has never really felt equitable in, in that space. For many kids, um, you know, not just Aboriginal kids, but for some kids it just doesn't feel equitable at all. So trying to get that understanding, realising that to make the school successful, we needed parents to believe that the school was worthwhile. Mm. And to do that, we needed to make it um, a friendly place. And really, at the end of the day, you know, I've got a couple of very heartfelt letters written to me by Aboriginal families who have said very simple things like, we like our kids to come to the school because you are friendly and kind at Saturday School. Friendly and kind. Now, it's not hard when you think to be friendly and kind. And I've often thought that while this little town values what Aboriginal people bring to it in a sense of economy, while they probably don't even understand the extent of it, they don't value Aboriginal people who, you know, sort of are very important to this part of the world. And so <clears throat> when you see Aboriginal people walking in a group, Many people don't even greet them, don't say hello. You know, if you said hello to someone, then they'll say hello back and then there's a connection. So you get that sense that there's very much them and us and I think our students really feel that. And I, part of me really wanted not to have that sense that there's them and us and looking for ways to try and make that work in, in the sense of a school or a community space where, you know, there's more two-way communication going on, there's more willingness to listen, um, willingness to share, um, a lack of judgment, not being judgmental about people, trying to put yourself in a different perspective and, and see it differently, trying to understand things like... Um, what we have got and, and how much you need to live a good life. I mean, they're very philosophical thoughts and questions and that whole ethical question around education, public education, um, 
and trying to achieve the best outcomes for our families and kids. Mm. So that ethics questions are really um, strong one for me, I suppose. Yeah, mm. I'll, I'll throw it over to um, Kay in a minute uh, just to hear her thoughts. But uh, I think we've had chats about kindness. I think, Liz, it's how it's both like a simple but difficult thing. And, and, mm. and as you were talking, I, I, I was reflecting on how one of the challenges is about persisting with compassion and kindness, even in the face of, you mm. know, people who are not necessarily acting towards you um, in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you, I mean, and it sounds like there are a lot of things that you do for the staff and for the students. How do you maintain that? You know, when you, when you, you know, you've had children who are not necessarily you know, um, uh, receptive to your, uh, you know, uh, uh, kindness or offers of safety, mm-hmm. families who are, you know, quite, you know, acting unsafe. How, how do you maintain that for yourself in terms of holding that kind and compassionate position? Well, I suppose um, I like to laugh a lot. <clears throat> I like to make jokes about things often at other people's expenses sometimes. <laughs> but having a team of people that you can really... Um, share stuff with is very important and at the end of every day we would sit down and we would have a bit of a debrief and sometimes that would involve you know oh my god you know that was but we would sort of let it go and when I started working at the women's refuge I learned a really good um, skill and that was when I walked out of the door of the refuge I left it behind and I went home and my other life was a very rich life So to have another life is really important. And so you put that one aside and then you step into this other life, which, you know, is your friends and your family and the things you love to do and all that sort of stuff. But the trauma-informed information and knowledge that I learned from you guys and from Joe Tucci and from a lot of research that I've read and a lot of people that I've talked to, and there is much information on it now, has really enabled me to be able to put some of those issues that you might, you know, that challenge you with kids and, and families and stuff and understand that this thing happens to people And that is why they respond the way they do. And it's nothing, it's not a personal thing about you. It's it's bigger than that. And so you've got to take the you and and that, that whole personal thing out of that and just move forward with the idea that this is, you know, what do you need at the moment now, right? You need me to be calm and you need me to be kind to you and you need me just to talk nicely to you. And you know, I guess I've developed that persona over the years because I'm I'm quite fiery. If you talk to my kids and stuff, you know, I can get riled up and rant and rave a bit. But I have this persona where I don't get rattled in a school sense. And I think you have to build that thing that it's not about, it's not a personal attack on me. Um, even though you're calling me all these names, I know that you don't really mean it. And, you know, there's real power in in not reacting to to that. And it's a very powerful thing for kids to see that 
They can get angry with you and they can yell at you and they can call you all the names under the sun, but at the end of the day, you're still going to like them and it's going to be okay. And that's a really powerful message to those kids and their families because, you know, they can't believe sometimes that um, that they can come in and call you all the names under the sun because they're really hurt and upset and shame and angry. And then the next day you can walk past them and go, how are you going? And they move on very quickly too. And so there's that, there's that sense of, okay, they're not going to judge. They're not going to judge. You know, it doesn't have to be shame because that whole concept of shame is such a powerful um, thing. And, you know, to be non-judgmental and to be able to look at, at people for just for that they're people and not judge people because of what they might be wearing or the fact that they don't speak your language or, you know, I guess travel's good for that because um, we were talking about India earlier, Govind, and when I was in India last year in November, it was a real novelty for me to sit there and go, I'm the only white person in this bus. I'm the only white person in this bus. Now, how, how does that make me feel? You know, that whole reverse stuff about um, being the minority group and getting that real sense that you're a minority group. So, you know, thinking that for our little kids sometimes, that they're very much, you know, a little group that is looked upon as being different. Mm. And um, I've never really liked that. So I guess just... Um, just um, having a good sense of myself, not taking things too personally, trying to understand the cultural aspects of what, what I work amongst and work in and finding that interesting and reading a lot of things about that and talking to people about it, um, you know, it gives you a very rich life, really. Yeah. Thank you so mm -hmm. much, Liz. I'll, I'll just throw it over to Kay if she had any questions or comments. No, I don't think so, this point. Great. Um, thank you so much, Liz. That was so um, helpful and useful, I think. Um, we haven't even got to all the great kind of events and activities that you <laughs> did. At no. the <laughs> I'm sure people can um, get in touch with you and um, get more information on. Um, we really think uh, one of the reasons we did this is because we think, you know, we really wanted to showcase the great work that Saturday have done over the years for the community, um, but also to really kind of um, showcase you as a real resource, I think, with all your experience and expertise um, in this, you know, educational leadership area. So um, thank you very much for your work that you've done with Saturday, but thank you for your time this afternoon as well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay. Well, um, we'll put up any um, contact details if you're looking to get in touch with Liz and wanting to know more. Um, but apart from that, thanks everyone for listening and we will see you next time. That was Elizabeth Verstappen from Saturday Primary School in Alice Springs, Northern Territory. Australia. To learn more about trauma-informed education, visit our website, tipbs.com.
That's T-I-P-B-S dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider providing us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Your feedback makes all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.